Welcome to What in the World Language Podcast. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Krishana Heinz Gaither. Dr. Heinz Gaither is the director for the Intercultural Engagement Center and the Associate Vice President for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Dr. Heinz Gaither has taught Spanish in higher education since 1999. Currently, she is the director of the Intercultural Engagement Center and the Associate Vice President for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Guilford College in Greensboro, North Carolina. Dr. Heinz Gaither has held several positions in professional organizations. She is the past chair of the ACFL, American Council on the Teaching of Foreign Languages, Special Interest Group for Educators of African American Students. She is also the past president of the Foreign Language Association of North Carolina. She is the co-founder of African American Linguists, an organization founded in 2004 that promotes languages amongst African Americans. She received her bachelor's degree in Spanish from Salem College and a master's degree in Spanish education from Wake Forest University. Dr. Heinz Gaither received her PhD from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro in cultural studies. Her dissertation was titled, Negotiations of Race, Class, and Gender Among Afro-Latino Women Immigrants to the Southern United States. Her research interests include Afro-Latinx and Afro-Francophone literature and culture. She has taken dozens of students to Mexico and Cuba to study abroad and to conduct research. In her leisure, Dr. Heinz Gaither enjoys writing, cooking, vegetarian cuisine, traveling, and promoting racial equity. She resides in Winston-Salem, North Carolina with her husband, Julian, and son, Giovanni. Welcome to the show, Dr. Heinz Gaither. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So on the show today, Dr. Heinz Gaither will discuss her upcoming publication, Reimagining World Languages Education, Equity Access, and Social Justice. And Dr. Heinz Gaither will also answer questions about linguicism and language discrimination in Spanish heritage classrooms. And she will tell us about her upcoming workshop addressing white fragility and discuss ways in which teachers can go about dismantling their implicit bias. So without any further ado, let's get started. So Dr. Heinz Gaither, tell our listeners a bit about your upcoming publication, Reimagining World Language Education, Equity, Access, and Social Justice. And let me just say, I love that in the outline of this book, it stated, we explicitly sought chapters that are authored or co-authored with students, families, members of the community, and other voices that are typically marginalized in academic venues. Because, you know, all too often we find that educators of color are indeed marginalized in these venues. So tell us a little bit about the book. Great. So this book is going to be edited by three world language professionals. Um, some are high school language um, educators, others are high school educators, and some are methods instructors. And so the author with whom I'm most engaged is Cassandra Glenn. Um, she's been a great friend of mine for well over a decade now. I met Cassandra at ACFL probably 10 years ago. She is a white uh, German professor by training. She was very concerned about 
the lack of enrollment of African-American students in particular um, in world language programs um, in Minnesota. So there was underrepresentation of African-Americans in her school, but she felt there was enough representation that the number should have been higher of African-American students enrolled in her programs. Mm -hmm. She ended up writing her entire dissertation to address um, this, this lack of enrollment. A lot of the teachers that she interviewed, which were, I believe, all white educators of languages in her particular school in Minnesota, all of the teachers came from a fairly deficit-based approach. And so they feel mm. you don't have African-American students enrolled because they don't care, mm. it's not important, it's not valued in their, languages aren't valued in their communities. And so this was kind of the stock story or the master narrative that was given by the educators and even some administration at the school. Cassandra then interviewed the students and she got a vastly different response. The students were telling her, we, African-American students, we do value languages, we do want to be in these classes, we do want to pursue languages, but these are the issues. Mm -hmm. And the issues were, were many. One was that deficit approach they had encountered quite a bit where the language educators felt they couldn't do it. And they felt that was a pretty pervasive view that the teachers would give off in classes that they felt they were less than and inadequate. Another um, uh, kind of organizing issue that they had at the school was they had very few people of color. And so to promote equity across their, their classes, they would um, assign they would split up the African-American students or the students of color, and they would assign them to individual classrooms so that they could make sure they had diverse representation in each class. Mm -hmm. Well, when you only have, let's say, five to 10 African-American students, I don't know what the exact numbers were, but let's just hypothetically say five to 10 African-American right. students across 10 sections, and the students were reported, I know that if I took a language class, I was going to be the only person in the class because this was the standard of the school to split us all up. Mm. And so I'm already face with an educator who feels that I'm less than and I'm inadequate and I can't do it and then I have no community support within that classroom. Mm. So they would tend to um, um, not enroll in the language classrooms because they knew that the stratification was as such they were going Why to be the you? only one. And so the students were thinking actually in a very sophisticated way about the social stratification of the classroom. So in a nutshell, um, Cassandra began to do this research, gained a lot of insights, and um, tried to bring this information back to her school. Um, I will say they were not very receptive to it. Um, they, they did not want to counter narrative to what had already been created. A lot of times it's much easier for institutions to simply believe that the students don't care than it is to change our policies and our practices. And so Cassandra, um, along with these other authors, they started publishing some pretty cutting edge stuff. And so their first book was called Words in Action, Teaching Languages Through the Lens of Social Justice. And I was able to contribute to that book. This is actually uh, their second project, which is the title that you just mentioned, Reimagining World Languages, um, Education, Equity, Access, and Social Justice. So I had been presenting at national conferences with Cassandra and serving on national committees with her to um, try to combat that deficit approach of our students um, for over a decade. And so when she started working with this project, she called me and said, I would love for you to contribute. She was very explicit um, that she wanted um, co-authored pieces because she's Cassandra is really great about making sure that she brings people from the margins to the center 
And in my office, it worked out really well because I was just um, embarking upon more publications and I wanted to publish as many articles in community as I could. And so I reached out to my staff and to our students who were able to help me with the project. So that Words and Actions book is uh, published by Actful, it correct? It is, it is. Awesome. Yes. Yes, and our, our, our article that we're writing is called Voces Invisibles, which means invisible, invisible voices, disrupting the master narrative with Afro-Latina counter stories. So we are interviewing Afro-Latina students um, and receiving their stories about their inclusion or exclusion um, as Afro-Latina students in world language programs. Fascinating. Um, so that leads kind of into the next question. Um, where do you see the deficit in education, uh, you know, thinking about K through 12 specifically, but in, in higher education also, um, where do you see the deficit uh, when it comes to acknowledging the intersectional identities of Afro-Latinas or Latinos and people of color? And, and what strategies um, can we implement that moves us beyond tokenism, and you may or may not need to explain what tokenism is to our listeners. Um, so yeah, speak on that a little bit. Well, I'll give my language educators, my fellow language educators, um, a slight pass, um, and then I'm going to challenge them as well. But in terms of a pass, I will say that very, I, I have four degrees, and I've studied Spanish exclusively for almost all of those degrees. Um, and it is rare that I ever learned about Afro-Latinos um, or Afro-Latinx communities mm. with any of those degrees. Um, I remember maybe, and this is, you know, 10 years of scholarship of getting degrees, 10 to 12, 13 years of, of working on associate degrees and bachelor's, master's, PhD. Um, very rarely do I recall anyone incorporating anything about um, Afro-Latinx communities or heritage or history within my program. And so I learned about it because I was interested um, and I wanted to learn about it and I was very self-taught. You were proactive. Very much so, very much so. So the past piece is I will acknowledge that our language educators oftentimes are feeding their students what they've been given. Right. And many of them have not been given education outside of kind of their mainstream textbooks and things like that, that oftentimes omit the voices of the margins. Oh, textbooks are woefully inadequate. Absolutely which may be the indigenous voices oftentimes not included, women's voices oftentimes less than. If so, it's just like a paragraph. Absolutely. Or maybe a half a page in reference. Absolutely. Um, and voices of African descent abysmally um, excluded from our textbooks. And so the past, I will say, I understand that, that this isn't information that they've been given. The challenge, I would say, as educated people, we all know how to get information. Um, you have people who don't have formal education and they know how to Google and they know how to find right. information and the answers that they need. So no real excuse today, correct? Not at all, not at all. And so the information is there. Um, I think that we have to look at our classrooms and we have to see that they are increasingly diverse. And if we want to truly have a classroom of inclusion, um, where it's not just tokenism, and by that, in this context, I mean where we're depending on students, one student, to represent their entire community and to be the educators of the group. I think we are the masters of our own narrative, so I think it, first-hand narratives are very powerful, but at the same time, the teacher-educator has a responsibility to self-educate um, 
to incorporate information within their curriculum and not just seasonally in terms of um, in, a, in a specific month. Um, right. But I think it needs to be well integrated throughout throughout the course. That's a great point, seasonally, because uh, I know uh, I teach Spanish, uh, and a lot of times October or uh, during February, Black History Month, is uh, one time a lot of teachers try those that are marginally attempting to bring in those uh, those voices they they use afro latinx just during that month mm-hmm. yeah. and, and like you you made a you made a point about bringing that maybe perhaps that one student to be the the cultural token of the classroom that mm-hmm. is what, what pressure is that putting on that person in that classroom right yes yes so and i i honor black history month because Carter G. Woodson fault for us to have that week, which later became a month. Right. And so I really honor that time, but I think you can't stay there. We have to grow. We have to expand beyond that. So I think it's, it's, it's a good start, but my issue is when that's the only time that we incorporate these voices. I agree with that 100%. That's, that's what I was trying to say, that we need to acknowledge that month and, and what it represents, but also that can't be your only, well, we're going to do this just for this month and then forget about it. Absolutely. I would also say that our textbooks um, oftentimes are behind the times, even if they were published just last year. They're if already you, outdated. They really are. And so I think we need to go off script in terms of looking at um, things that sometimes in the literature is called um, soft data. Um, so maybe blogs and uh, Twitter feeds and um, those Facebook pages that are for different communities um, where they're in their own voices telling their own stories and so don't be afraid to go off script one of the greatest compliments I ever received and I don't think it was meant as a compliment but it was um, I was working for um, an institution and they were having a conversation about the adoption of a textbook I had a meeting and couldn't attend that particular conversation about the adoption of the textbook. Mm -hmm. The chair of the department said, we can proceed with this conversation, even though Krishana can't be there, because she really doesn't use the textbook anyway. I don't know how the chair meant that, but I took it as the greatest compliment ever. Because I really, I was not dependent on the textbook. They could have chosen anything, and it really didn't matter, because I was going to include the content that I felt needed to be included. And oftentimes, the way that I gauge what I felt needed to be included was to look at the textbook and to say what is missing. Right. And that is the way that I was able to gauge what is missing here and Mm -hmm. to know what I needed to incorporate. Well, I just want to take this moment and say that you... Years ago, introduced me to Dr. Stephen Krashen and uh, <laughs> Comprehensible Input. Uh, you're the first person I ever heard mention that name, and that started me off on my journey. And when I became a language teacher, I, I, I haven't used the textbook at all, mm-hmm. right? Because I, f- I feel they are in, inadequate, and they don't bring in uh, those voices we spoke about. So yes. Yes. thank you. Yes, thank you. You're a great student. <laughs> So um, I know you've taught many levels of Spanish during your career. Um, Could you address within the context of this conversation the need for Spanish teachers specifically um, to understand this notion of linguicism? That's to say teachers that tend to place hierarchies within the use of the Spanish language, you know, and more specifically in heritage language classrooms. You know, as you know, I teach uh, heritage Spanish at my high school. So, yes, I think it's a very It's a complicated question, but also 
it can be a very dangerous practice that of having the hierarchies. So it's complex because as language educators, we do want our students to understand academic grammar. We want them to understand um, what has been legitimized in the academy. That's we want them to have that education. And so we want competent language learners and I totally understand that as a language educator. So I think we have a responsibility to make sure that our students are competitive. Right. And part of that competitiveness and being prepared um, to compete in a global market is going to be understanding um, what has been legitimized in the academy. Right. At the same time, we do have to understand how things become legitimized in the academy. And mm -hmm. so in critical race theory, there's a term that we use called the stock story or the master narrative. There's always a particular framing of what is legitimate and what is not, and that is always going to be based on the majority. Right. Um, even if it is not rational, even if it is not um, sensible, even if it is not grounded in research, if the majority says that to be true, typically you will go with that and that That's will become the standard. Mm -hmm. And so we spend a lot of work with critical race theory in trying to counter that, what we call counter stories or counter narratives. And so in terms of the hierarchy, um, I would note that I do think it's important to teach what has been legitimized in the academy. At the same time, I think it's great to question that and right. to say, um, why is negritud why is that any less of an academic exercise than uh, process or than other forms of literature or prose right. or poetry? I think that um, we can look at things from the perspective of we don't have to always have a ladder, but we can have a spectrum. And so a ladder oftentimes will be one ring is above or, beno or beneath the other. A mm -hmm. spectrum is we can look at things across, across. differences, across variances. Mm -hmm. One doesn't have to be above or below, but it really can be this is another perspective. This right. is a different way of looking at this. I also think that when we commit the crime of telling students that what you speak and what you were nurtured in and your language, which is representative of your family and your community and your country is bad. Mm -hmm. We create a very dangerous practice of people who easily become isolated and separated from our instruction, but even they can also uh, really experience internalized inferiority. And so in our next segment um, when we talk a little bit more about the specifics of our project this was commonplace that we had heritage speakers who had been told um, that what they spoke the way that they um, 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 pronounced words um, were, were bad right. and so I think we have to understand where that mindset is coming from and mm -hmm. understand that there's a lot of richness to the idiosyncrasies of language. And so Absolutely. with um, Afri in, in addition to heritage speakers, with African-American language learners in particular, I often try to incorporate concepts such as call and response. Um, we have very rich cultural expressions that we use, and the same is true within Spanish language. Right. And so I oftentimes try to use that call and response culture as a basis for learning language and learning how to structure sentences and put things together in a second language. And so I think if we don't see it from a deficit approach, we can actually use their foundation and their base as something that's really rich and a cultural fusion that can really enhance our classes. It's like a launching pad when you honor that student's voice. Certainly, right. certainly. Um, well, so if I'm correct, Dr. Heinz Gaither, you'll be doing a uh, workshop in the fall that addresses the topic of white fragility. Um, could you tell us a bit about 
about what that workshop will look like and also why there's a pressing need to address this topic in relation to educators specifically? So oftentimes minorities um, or minoritized people, our experiences and um, our stories, um, they oftentimes are very well theorized. And so there's critical race theory, which is my go-to. I absolutely adore critical race theory. Thinks it, it answers a lot of questions that we have. Um, but there's uh, uh, Latino critical theory, there's feminist theory. And so we have a lot of, there's uh, critical disability studies. There are, there are a lot of theoretical frameworks and models that speak to the experiences of marginalized people. And mm -hmm. I'm so grateful for that work. On the other hand, a dearth that we have had is the theorization of whiteness. Oftentimes, um, you know, you, you cannot discuss the experiences of those on the margins, especially with those of racial and ethnic minorities, with also looking at the counterpart whiteness that goes with that. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes that is an area that's under theorized. Um, also, we know that there is um, a, a pathology that happens when you deal with racism and implicit bias and microaggressions on a daily basis. There's a, there's a set of outcomes and that, that can happen from having to navigate a world where you're constantly marginalized um, in oppressive states. But there's also a pathology that happens when you live a life of, of, of privilege or a, the luxury of obliviousness where you do not know, where you do not see, where you claim not to know, you claim not to see, where you have a colorblind existence. There's a lot of damage that happens there too, and that can be under-theorized. And so, and we cannot have liberation for all people if we're not going to address um, those on the margins as well as those who, who benefit um, and who are privileged by our status quo. And so this workshop is going to be based large on the work of Robin D'Angelo, who wrote the book White Fragility. Um, many people around our campus right now, they're reading the book, and I have just made it a purpose to incorporate um, this book portions of it into pretty much everything that I'm doing. I'm excited about this workshop because students here on, at, at the college actually contacted my office and asked me if I would do a workshop on whiteness. Oh, and these were mixed groups of students as well. Wow. So that puts a new level of energy and interest Absolutely. to this work. The fact that students are forcing are it. Exactly. Yeah, that's amazing. So I'm super excited about that. And we will be looking at um, some of the tenets of white fragility, which are individualism or personalization. So oftentimes, um, white people enjoy the luxury of living as individuals. Um, if a crime is committed, just to use this example that's often in the media, if a crime is uh, committed by a person of color, most people of color will hold their breath and will say, I hope it's not an African-American who did it. Because we know if it is, all eyes will be on us. I hope it's not a Muslim who did that because we know as people of color, collective. everyone will view us as a collective. We do not have the luxury of individualism. Hmm. If a white person bombs something, blows something up, he or she will have, or they will have the luxury of individualism. Well, they will not have to speak for everyone of their group who committed this atrocity. And they will not be impacted negatively as, an, as a collective for the actions of one. That is not the luxury that many people of color get to live on a daily basis. So we'll be looking at that or personalization. When we try to talk about a systemic problem, let's say police brutality, you may have um, 
um, a white person who may say, well, my father's a police officer and my father's a good person and my father treats everyone, um, you know, as with humanity and dignity and respect. Um, I have no problem believing that that could be true. Right. But the issue is that you have taken a, a um, systemic problem and you've personalized it. And we, when we use personalization as a strategy, now the center has become your father. And if he's a good person or a bad person, right. then a system of brutality. And so we're going to look at that strategy that is often used unconsciously or consciously. That's a difficult, difficult one for most white people to acknowledge. Um, it's, they think their intentions uh, uh, justifies or clears this implicit bias. Absolutely. But the impact always trumps intentions, always. Always. Um, defensiveness and denial, which is another strategy that's often used by people who just aren't ready to see. That's um, the fragility, right? That's it. That's the fragility piece. Exactly. Solidarity, solidarity is also very powerful. And so um, if I were to say, um, Jadea, you spoke to me in a tone that I felt was very invalidating. What many white people will do instead of engaging that in saying, um, can, you, can we talk more about that? Um, I didn't recognize it. I didn't see it. Can you say more about it? Um, let me work through what may have caused that. Right. Um, how can I respond in a different way the next time? That would be a really fruitful conversation. That would be. But what typically happens with solidarity is that um, a white person, or and this is white fragility can, can also, I want to say this, can be used for any position of power. And so it's a really good theoretical model that you can use if, you're, if you identify as straight, for example. Fragility can come if someone pointed out homophobic actions or transphobic actions as well across races. And so, but mm. in this particular framing, it, it is about whiteness. And so, um, solidarity, instead of going through that exercise of what I just described, um, you might go to another white person and say, Krishana said that I spoke to her in, you know, a demeaning way. Um, this is all that I said to her. What do you think about it? And that person may very well say to you, I think she's just being too sensitive. Oh, like yes. It sounded fine to me. And so that solidarity. So it's your problem. They, they put it on you. That's exactly what happens. That solidarity now has just decentered the aggression. Right. And it has given me solidarity and affirmation that she's actually the problem. But it's also me. given her comfort. That's exactly right. right. So she's, it, she's justified That's in that. Exactly she doesn't right. have to address that. That's right. Because, oh, you know, Dr. Heinz Gaither, she's, she's like that. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly That's right. That's powerful. And then finally, racial aversion. I'll be working with this in the workshop. Racial aversion is another strategy. And I use the word strategy because there, there are strategic acts that have a real impact, um, although they could be subconscious or conscious. But racial aversion... This is um, the way that people will talk about, um, will, will, will use non-racist language to mean very racist, to have a very racist intention. So they will use non-racist language to have a very racist intention. And for example, we may say, well, this is a good school, or this school is really going downhill. Oftentimes, when we say that, we may be referring to the academic rigor of the school. So we right. may be referring to that, so I'm not, not um, um, disagreeing with that. Right. However, oftentimes we also mean that 
there are more people of color coming into the school right. or the neighborhood. The neighborhood is going downhill. Yes. It could be that the property values are going down and people aren't caring for properties. That could be it. But more often than not, when we say the neighborhood is going downhill, there's a certain type of person who's moving into that neighborhood that you don't agree with, that you think less, less of. And so racial aversion is a nice way of saying very racist things without sounding very racist because you never mentioned race. You never said it. But you're, what, what are you really saying? Not explicitly, exactly. right? Exactly. So those underlining assumptions, yes. right, that go along with yes. that. So our goal is kind of to teach about some of these tenets of white fragility while also offering counter strategies. And so instead of doing this, like the example I gave, if I said your tone was really degrading the way that you spoke with me, a better way of addressing that instead of going to defensiveness and solidarity would be let's talk more about that. How can I do self-work so that the next time this may not happen? I think that's important because a lot of times um, when white people try to go into this work and understand and read D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, they, they become defensive and they, they don't want to acknowledge those things that they're doing. But it's, it's one thing when they, they do acknowledge their implicit bias and try to better it. And then we need to move directly to strategies like exactly. you just mentioned. Mm-hmm what can you do right you know and instead of running to your friend right. and saying what you said mm-hmm. how can you how can you address that with dr heinz gaither yes. or th- whoever you're yes. in front of yes so that 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 kind of you know what are some of the ways in which teachers in the classroom can can begin to dismantle their own implicit bias would you have any recommendations for that's a great question implicit bias can be it can be difficult because the word implicit Im- implies that you may not be aware of you it. You may not be aware of it, right. <laughs> and so we're asking you to address... Um, Something you're not aware you of. Know, a deficit within your character that you may really not have very much awareness of. And so the first thing is to settle down with the white fragility so that when people bring things to your attention, um, you are more aware and you are more open to receiving. Another um, strategy is to engage in spaces with people for whom they are not having your majority experience. And this doesn't have to even be a face-to-face conversation. It can be reading the books of people who um, occupy marginalized uh, identities and experiences. It could be going to lectures, going to talks. It could be listening to great podcasts like this. There are so many different strategies we can use to hear what are the experiences of people and to decenter ourselves for a moment and to just say, let their experience stand alone. What are these folks experiencing? And then a follow-up to that would be, how am I complicit in that? Ask yourself those tough questions, which can be hard to do, but they need to be asked. There's a test, the implicit bias test, that a lot of people are doing now at Harvard University. It's very quick, very short, and it will give you a result of where your biases may be. Some strategies that you can use um, in the classroom in terms of implicit bias to address that would be counter-stereotypical images. So a lot of our biases do come from images. And so if we believe that, um, and also research, so if if I asked you, um, what does a welfare mother look like? you, um, we can all imagine what that would look like. Um, We all know the images that are fed Mm -hmm. to us, the welfare queen. Queen, We have all this terminology from presidents that have spoken to this issue, and we know what that woman looks like in our heads. Mm. Visualize it. That's absolutely powerful. It is. And then you counter those common misperceptions or those conceptions by countering those images. And so you 
if you do research, we know that the majority of women who receive welfare in the United States are white women. Um, <laughs> exactly. Um, about 24 million. And then the next group um, would be Latina women. And then the next group would be African-American women. But if I were to ask you to go through that exercise with me, what does a welfare mom look like? You would have started, mo many people, with that African-American mother. Yes. And perhaps next you would have gone to the Latina mother and perhaps next you would have gone to the white woman when the statistics show us it's absolutely the, the reverse says, of that. Yeah. And so not only so the data could help understanding more data, but also countering those images that you actually do research and say, who are these mothers? And so you begin to get a different picture of what that actually looks like. Um, you have to be very careful about confirmation bias. And so if you already have a bias that welfare moms look a certain way, you are more likely when you think you see that to use that as affirmation of what you already believe. And so you have to ask yourself when you see a mother in a grocery store that has several children as, and is a person of color, do I automatically assume that she's going to pay with some form of subsidized payment uh, by the government? Are you confirming the bias that you think you already have, or are you actually challenging that? Um, and much of this comes from research and data and from being in community with folks. The research shows us if we only know big categories about people, we're more likely to be more biased against them. And so in the classroom, um, if you only know that he's a Latinx student or that she's an African-American student, whatever your biases are against that particular group, you will attribute that to the entire group because minorities oftentimes do not get to enjoy the luxury of individualism. You're going to attribute those biases to the entire group, and you may teach down to them as opposed to having um, high standards for them. And so um, the research shows us if we know small details about people, we're, we're less likely to be biased against them. And so if I know that this kid works at the mall after school, if I know that this kid is saving money to go to college, the same way that as a white person I save money to go to college, if I know that this young man um, just got his driver's license and is still kind of shaky on parallel parking, whatever it may be, when we know details about people, they become humanized to us they become exactly their people you build relationships that's critical Absolutely. in my classroom um, when I go to conferences or whenever I speak uh, I tell people that that what do you do in your classroom and I tell them well the first thing I do that's is I exactly build relationships right. you know in my Spanish classroom the the first five minutes sometimes it's more than five minutes all I do is walk around and ask the uh, students every one of them whether I have 10 kids or 20 kids in that class como estas Mm -hmm. How are you? Mm -hmm. And I may be in front of that kid for five seconds, 10 seconds, maybe a little longer. Mm -hmm. But that interaction, that getting to setting the tone of the day of the class, acknowledging them as a person. Yes. Right, is it goes a long way, not only in classroom yes. management, but just letting them see that I genuinely exactly care right. about them. That's so exactly that's critical right. to build those relationships. It went back to that, what you said at the beginning of the podcast about that deficit mentality if you come into the classroom. That's with exactly that. so. right. And those, it may seem like something small, but when I, but when I learned that your story is similar or different than mine, 
when I learn those intimate details, and it doesn't, it could be like you said, just como sas, where you just learn, how are you feeling today? How is today going for you? When I learn those details about your existence, um, it, it adds a level of humanity to our relationships that I may not have had before. So it is really important. In my office, we start every Monday with, how was your weekend? What did you do this weekend? A really simple question, but we learned so much about each other just from asking that question. Uh, the last strategy that I would use in terms of um, um, combating implicit bias is self-care. So our research shows us the more that we are well, and so if we are not stressed, if we are in a good headspace, if we are not upset, if we are not rushed, running from one place to the next, we tend to be more biased against people and less careful about our actions and our language when we are stressed out. And so hmm. the more we take care of ourselves, um, when we're calm, when we're settled, when we're in a good headspace, when we're not rushed, when we've eaten properly, when our bodies are in optimal condition, we tend to treat people better and so that's a self-care uh, strategy that we can also use. Um, the last thing I'll say about implicit bias, even though you may not be aware of it, this is something really powerful in the research, you may not be aware that you have a bias against obese people, for example, or against small people, for example. But the research shows us whether you are consciously aware of your bias or not, your actions will follow the bias. And so even if you are subconscious mm. and you're not aware that you have that bias against X group, your actions are equally dangerous and harmful. They will still play out in the same way as if you were conscious of it. They will, they will manifest themselves. Well, Dr. Heinz Gaither, you have given us a lot of information today to awesome. digest. Um, so as you know, on my podcast, I like to have all my guests tell us just a little bit about their language journeys. Um, so would you mind telling us briefly how you came to be Dr. Krishana? Absolutely. Short version of the story is um, I'm the first one in my family to graduate from college. I came from a long lineage of very hardworking people, but who had not had the access to higher education. Because of that, my parents always told me that I was supposed to do this thing that no one had done before. And so I knew it was a strong family value, um, but I wasn't sure how to obtain it because I didn't have a roadmap for that. And so I worked at a restaurant waiting tables for about seven years, the same restaurant. Um, and really, I was not taking any conscious steps towards going to college. It was just something kind of in the back of my head. A woman came in from U.S. Airways, and she said, you're such a great, a great server. She said, I would love for you to work for me. And she was recruiting flight attendants at U.S. Air. She said, because it's pretty much the same job. It's just in the air. And so she told me, if you will go to college or go somewhere and learn a second language, you can do international flights, and you would make more money. So I went to a community college, checked myself in. This was the first thing that looked like a plan that I had had my parents sold the seed, but didn't have the wherewithal to be able to navigate this institution for me. So this woman telling me, go to a community college, learn enough foreign language for you to, or second language or world language for you to be able to do international flights was just the nugget that I needed. So I went to a community college um, for two years, studied Spanish. Something transformational happened. I had a world language educator, um, a white woman educator who implemented a lot of these personal 
non-tokenizing strategies that we've talked about today. She got to know me. She even got to know my, my family, would come to family events with me. And to this day, 25 years later, still one of my very best friends. But she mentored me. And um, I think there was a part of me, I just wanted to be like her. And I loved the classroom. I never wanted to leave the classroom. So instead wow. of going to U.S. Air, and this was an African-American woman at U.S. Air, I credit both of them equally, the woman from U.S. Air and the uh, language educator whose class I landed in, both of them with planting seeds that really germinated. And so um, I never went back to U.S. Air. I decided I really want to teach. Like, I can do this. I love feeling successful. Wow. I was good at languages. I love watching this particular educator and the way that she managed her classroom in such a fulfilling way. Um, that the rest is history. And that's the way that I ended up in education. Instead of going back to U.S. Air, I just continued on that route to becoming a language educator. Wow, that's fascinating. You hear that, teachers? Um, respect students, learn about them in uh, our universities and colleges. We'll have great professors like Dr. Krishana Heinz Gaither. <laughs> I want to thank you for being oh, on the show today, Dr. You. Heinz Gaither. It's been very informative. listening to what in the world